In a world in which no one does good, God's salvation by the righteous one makes a way for the righteous to dwell with the Lord forever. Christmas time. Perhaps you've heard a song on the radio or playing in the mall. I imagine most of you will be avoiding the mall this week, but just for the sake of illustration. The song goes, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. I'll stop right there. If you're like me, you probably haven't thought too much about the content of this song before. But I want to ask you, especially the kids who are watching, what is the message of this song? Think about it. What is this song telling you to do? If I had to sum up the message of this song, it would be simply this. Santa is watching, so be good. In listening to this song, it's almost like every kid has a bad or good switch that they can turn on and off. But is being good really that simple? Would the message of Santa is watching, so be good change the way you respond when mom or dad told you to do the dishes back in July? And friends, if that were the message of Christmas, would we really have any reason to celebrate Christmas? If we earn our Christmas gifts by being good, then are those Christmas gifts really gifts? Or should they be thought of as part of your allowance? The sad thing is that even as Christians, we can begin to start thinking of God as a Santa Claus-like figure. We just think that when Christmas comes around, he will probably still give us presents even if we were naughty. And we begin to think of humanity like the kids in the song. We begin to think that we can simply decide to be good for goodness sake. Well, what does God's word say about these things? Are we just a bit naughty in a kind of cute sort of way? Or are we much worse than we would like to think? This morning we are back again in the Psalms. And beginning in Psalm 14, David confronts us with the depth and breadth of human sin. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Psalms 14 and 15. You may be wondering why I choose to preach on Psalms 14 and 15 together. The reason is that I think these two Psalms complement each other in a unique way that echoes especially Psalm 1, but Psalm 2 as well. Psalms 1 and 2 are very important in introducing themes that are expanded on throughout the whole book of Psalms. The ESV Study Bible Notes speaks of Psalms 1 and 2 forming the doorway into the whole Psalter. Psalm 1 contrasts the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Psalm 2 introduces clear prophecy pointing ahead to King Jesus. In studying Psalms 
14 and 15, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous are also contrasted, and there also is foreshadowing of the future Savior King. So without further ado, let's dive into our two psalms for this morning. Please follow along with me as I read. Psalm 14, to the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friends, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Did you notice the contrast as Psalm 14 focuses on the wickedness of man? And Psalm 15 characterizes the righteous person. If I had to sum up the main idea of these two psalms for us today in one sentence, I would phrase it this way. In a world in which no one does good, God's salvation by the righteous one makes a way for the righteous to dwell with the Lord forever. In a world in which no one does good, God's salvation by the righteous one makes a way for the righteous to dwell with the Lord forever. This sermon will have four points from Psalm 14. Point number one, no one does good, verses one to three. And point two, but God will save his people, verses four to seven. From Psalm 15, point three is a question, who can dwell with the Lord, verse one. And point four is the answer, only the righteous one, verses two to five. Let's begin with point one, no one does good. Look back again at Psalm 14, verses one to three. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 14 begins with the words, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. When we hear the word fool, we need to think on how the Bible uses the word fool. It's not so much talking about a clown or having to do with how much knowledge a person has. If wisdom, according to the Bible, begins with the fear of the Lord, then foolishness, according to the Bible, begins with a lack of the fear of the Lord. This lack of the fear of the Lord is exactly what we see in verses 1 to 3. In fact, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In Psalm 10, the wicked also is characterized by thinking, there is no God. Psalm 14 begins with this foolish and wicked statement. This lack of acknowledgement of God results in corruption of the whole person and the doing of abominable deeds. 
Verse 1 ends with the stark statement, There is no one who does good. And the doing of abominable deeds. Verse 1 ends with the stark statement, There is no one who does good. In verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven. In Psalm 11, we heard that his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord looks down, and what is he looking for? He is looking for any who understand, for any who seek after God. But what God finds is an echo of what the psalmist David stated in verse 1. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. God looks down from heaven, and what does he find? He doesn't find even one single person who does good. We can think back on the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham pleads with God, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous in the city? If there are 50, would God spare the whole city for the sake of the righteous? What if there are 45? What if there are 40? What if there are 30? What if there are 20? What if there are 10? Even if God finds 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom, he would not destroy the city. But we know from the rest of the story that there are not even 10 righteous in the city. Even Lot was only called righteous because he was counted righteous through faith in God. We will get back to that later. In and of himself, he was a far cry from being a blameless man. Here in Psalm 14, the Lord looks down on the world and says, There is not even one who does good. And before we think that this psalm applies only to the evil of a particular time and place, perhaps a particular time in David's life, we must remember that God's word very clearly applies the words of verses 1 to 3 to all of us. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, verses 10 to 18, we have Paul opening up the Old Testament scriptures and showing us that all of us are under sin. Here we see again the words, No one is righteous, no, not one. We see again that no one seeks for God. We see again the words, No one does good, not even one. These can be considered not only quotations from our psalm this morning, but also quotations from Psalm 53 which has several lines that are nearly the same as Psalm 14. God's word in multiple places clearly states, not one of us does good. Does this fact offend us at all? We want to put a good spin on things. What kid would say at Christmas time, yes, I've been really bad this year, I shouldn't get any presents. But consider the evil that humans have done and continue to do. We want to think of humans as basically good. But if humans are basically good, then how is it that humans do so much evil together? Some may have thought that World War II would have scared the world into not starting another war. But wars have been going on until this day. And atrocities committed in wartime make us wonder, if I was in that person's shoes, would I have done anything differently? Some say that it is society that corrupts us, but aren't we as humans ultimately responsible for the sins of society in the first place? So brothers and sisters, do we 
also make light of the sinful state of humanity? Are we as Christians still guilty of wanting to minimize sin? Perhaps in sharing the gospel with someone, we are afraid to clearly state that the person we are sharing with has sinned against a holy God. The person we are sharing with most, will most likely not take their sin very seriously, but we can't be guilty of joining them in that foolishness. Perhaps even in sharing our testimonies, we don't grasp the magnitude of what it took for a holy God to save sinners like you and me. I don't remember life before I believed in the gospel as I came to know the Lord as a child, but that doesn't mean I'm not familiar with the sins I still struggle with to this day. My pride, my laziness, my selfishness from this past week is more than enough to make me guilty of the fires of hell. I don't have to have committed a crime that landed me in prison in order to sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. The wretchedness of our sin should not be something we minimize. So are there ways you may be minimizing ongoing sin in your own life? Are you taking sin seriously? Though as Christians we're being made new in Christ, we have not yet been made perfect. If your love for God has diminished, perhaps it's because you're forgetting how serious your sinful state was and how much you've been forgiven of. No one is righteous, no, not one. There was a sermon in which David Platt asked the question, what about the innocent guy in Africa who never has a chance to hear the gospel? And he began by answering that the innocent guy in Africa who never has a chance to hear the gospel would go to heaven. If he hasn't sinned, he is innocent. He would go to heaven. The problem is the innocent guy in Africa or the innocent guy in Asia who never has a chance to hear the gospel does not exist. There's no such thing as an innocent person. All of us are guilty people. And that is what we see here at the beginning of Psalm 14. No one is righteous, no, not one. That is not good news for humanity. It begs the question, what will a perfectly holy God do with sinful humanity, with you and me? That brings us to point number two. But God will save his people. But God will save his people. Look again at verses four to seven. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Verse 4 begins with a question, have they no knowledge? David understands that the fool truly does not have knowledge. In verse 4, the fool, the doer of evil, is characterized by two things. Eating up God's people as an everyday thing, just like they eat bread, and not calling upon the Lord. The fool's wickedness is pictured by how he treats God and how he treats people. And yet, even in verses 5 and 6, there is hope for God's people. In verse 5, the evildoer actually is in terror of God, for he knows that God is with the generation of the righteous. The evildoer says, there is no God. But the evildoer has a difficult time believing it in the depths of his heart. The evildoer still has 
perhaps a hint of knowledge that he is actively rejecting God. And in rejecting God, he's acknowledging God's existence. The righteous, on the other hand, can take hope in the fact that God is with them. This leads to the question, if verses 1 to 3 are saying that every single person in the world is wicked, then how is it that verse 5 can speak of righteous people? It would seem that these righteous people are not righteous because of what they did, but because God has counted them righteous. Verse 6 speaks of the evildoer's treatment of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. The Lord is a safe place for the mistreated poor. I do want to take a minute and address any non-Christians joining the Zoom meeting. That your rejection of God is at the heart of your sin problem. Yes, there are other wrongs, other sins that come out of that, but the heart of it is saying and acting like there is no God over you and you're king over your own life. At the time of David, atheism wasn't an option. Everyone believed in the supernatural. The fool who said in his heart, there is no God, was likely following after idols. He had a belief. But it's not enough simply to have a belief if the belief isn't a false god. And it's not simply enough to believe in a, a god that you made yourself. There's only one true god, the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth. In verse 4, it's like David is saying, don't these people understand the consequences for their actions? Don't these people understand that the true God is watching the way they treat his people? So to any non-Christian friends, I hope God gives you eyes to see that rejection of God is evil. It's a crime against God. If telling my parents who love and care for me that I never want to see them or talk to them ever again is obviously wrong, then how much more wrong is rejecting the God who created you? But there is hope, and that hope is in the promised salvation of verse 7. Verse 7 ends with a wish. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And this wish comes out of a heart that knows God will do this. God will bring about salvation. In the end of verse 7, David states, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Not if the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, but when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. We don't know when David wrote this psalm, but we know the world is not as it should be. The situation of God's people is not as it should be, but there is hope. God will cause Jacob to rejoice. God will cause Israel to be glad. And for Christians, the great mystery of the gospel that Paul writes of is that Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, will be included in the, this great salvation that God will bring out of Israel. Yes, let Jacob rejoice, and let Israel be glad that the Gentiles are being grafted in. God has made a way for salvation to come to all peoples, and that includes us. But how is it that salvation will come out of Zion? And where is this place, Zion? Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
Zion is God's place, God's holy hill. It's a place God has set as king. And if you have time later, you can read and meditate on Psalm 2 again. You can observe that this king that Psalm 2 is speaking of cannot simply be David. Yes, it may be referring to David in one sense, but this king that Psalm 2 speaks of has the power and authority to judge the world in a way that David never had. This king is called the Son. So who is this king who will come out of Zion, out of God's holy hill, out of God's place? Who would come out of Zion in order to save? And why would anyone want to come out of Zion? Isn't the, place for, isn't the point for us to go into Zion to dwell with God? Perhaps spending some time in Psalm 15 can help us answer some of these questions. That brings us to the third point, the question that Psalm 15 raises. Who can dwell with the Lord? Point number three, who can dwell with the Lord? Look again with me at Psalm 15, verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Psalm 15 also is a psalm of David. David raises the question of who would be worthy to spend time in God's tent? Who would be worthy to dwell on God's hill? In thinking on our sins in Psalm 14, the question of Psalm 15 is a logical one to ask. If no one is righteous, then who can sojourn in God's tent? If all have turned aside, together they have become corrupt, then who can dwell on God's holy hill? Notice also that according to Psalm 2, God's holy hill is Zion. This place from which promised salvation should come is the place that David desires to go. David desires to dwell with God. With the realization and recognition of our sin, are these the kinds of questions that we ask? Brothers and sisters, are the questions that David raises here of central importance to your life? Is the question of how can a person be allowed to dwell with God of central importance to you? Perhaps some of us who have been Christians for a long time take heaven for granted. I hope the opposite would be the case. But perhaps for some of us, this question, Lord, who will be allowed to dwell in your heaven, has lost a bit of its newness and a bit of its wonder. Assurance of salvation is a good thing, but assurance is never meant to replace thankfulness and wonder that God will save sinners like you and me. Have you ever asked a non-Christian friend the theoretical question, if you died tonight and God asked you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? Most everyone who is not a Christian appeals to their own relative goodness or the fact they haven't committed crimes that have landed them in prison. This reveals how they think about the answer to Psalm 15, verse 1. Perhaps the next time you ask a, a non-Christian friend this question, you could spend some time in Psalms 14 and 15 together. At first, the answer to Psalm 15, verse 1 may seem works-based, but as we study the message of Psalm 14 and 15, and the message of the Bible, we see that the answer to verse 1 is much more wonderful, much more full, than anything we could ever have thought of on our own. Which brings us to point 4, only the righteous one. 
Only the righteous one can dwell with the Lord. Look with me at Psalm 15, verses 2 to 5. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Notice in verse 2 that this righteous person's description begins by saying they walk blamelessly and do what is right. This sums up well the rest of how this blameless person is described. Verse 2 states that this person speaks the truth in his heart. Not only does this person speak the truth out loud, but when he speaks to himself in his heart, he does not lie or flatter, but he speaks the truth. We see in verses 2 to 5 that this blameless person is blameless in his speech, blameless in how he treats his neighbor and his friend. He hates evil, but he honors those who fear God. He is honest and will keep his word even if it hurts him, and he will protect the poor and needy, not taking money at interest or a bribe. Verse 5 finishes with the promise that he who does these things shall never be moved. So who is this blameless person? Does this blameless person even exist? Noah was called blameless in his generation. But after the flood at the end of Noah's story, we find him drunk and naked in his tent. Humanity had a chance for a fresh start with a blameless man and his family. But this was how his story ended. If we follow the logic of Psalm 14 and apply it to Psalm 15, we realize that when Psalm 14 says no one does good, that means that no one is righteous in and of themselves. I think the longer we stare at Psalm 15, the more we realize how hard this standard is to measure up to. Verse 2, speak the truth in our hearts. Do we always speak the truth in our hearts? Verse 3, do we never use our tongue to slander others? Do we keep our word even when it hurts? And so reading verses 2 to 5, we go back to the question in verse 1. Oh Lord, if no one lives up to the standard of verses 2 to 5, then will anyone be able to sojourn in your tent? Oh Lord, if we and everyone else don't live up to the standard of verses 2 to 5, then will anyone be able to dwell? on your holy hill. If you're a Christian, you know the answer to these questions. And yet it's good to put our feet in the shoes of the psalmist and ask these questions. It's good to remember that salvation means that we need someone to save us. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. That is what we sing about with songs such as O come, O come, Emmanuel, and come, thou long-expected Jesus. These Christmas hymns proclaim a deep longing. Perhaps our looking forward to Christmas has been dampened by COVID. It's disappointing to think of having a socially distant, masked Christmas. But even still, the truth behind Christmas gives us every reason to celebrate even during this roller coaster of the year.
Because, brothers and sisters of WSBC, we know that salvation has come. Salvation has come out of Zion, God's holy hill. The only righteous one took on flesh and dwelt among us. Only Jesus was fully obedient to God the Father all of the days of his life. Only Jesus kept God's law perfectly, walked blamelessly, and did what is right and spoke truth in his heart. Only Jesus could make salvation possible. Brothers and sisters, the king that David and Israel were waiting for, God's anointed one, Jesus Christ has come to save a people for himself. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate Jesus taking on flesh. It's only because of Jesus that we can enter into God's presence. It's only because of Jesus that we can dwell on his holy hill. It's only because of Jesus that we have reason to rejoice and be glad. So if you died tonight and God asked you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? For us as Christians, the answer is that if it were not for Jesus, God should not let us into heaven. But because of Jesus, we have been given the righteousness of Christ. Psalm 14 doesn't end with verse 3, and Romans 3 doesn't end with verse 18. Going back again to Romans chapter 3, let me read for you Romans 3, 21 to 25. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. To sum that up, through faith in Jesus Christ we have been given the righteousness of God. Being counted righteous, being justified in God's sight is a gift it's not earned. Jesus bought our righteousness with his own blood. In this way, God is righteous in his judgment of us because Jesus paid the penalty that had to be paid. And so, brothers and sisters, Psalms 14 and 15 speak of our great need for salvation from our sins and speak of the hope of salvation coming from Zion, and that hope has come. And because Jesus has come, because he has died and risen again, if you repent of your sins and trust in him for salvation, he will save you. And for those of us who are Christians, we can look at Psalms 15 verses 2 to 5 and realize that as Christians, this kind of blameless, righteous living should be characterizing our lives today. Not because we are trying to earn our way into heaven, but because Jesus is slowly changing us to be more like him. We're set free from slavery to our sins. We serve a new master. We're to put to death our sinful desires and put on what is holy and good by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we can be characterized by the godliness spoken of in Psalm 15, verses 2 to 5, trusting that one day we'll be able to enjoy living in the presence of God forever, where we will be made perfectly righteous like our Savior. 
And it's a joy for us to remember as well that living in God's presence is something that Christians will be able to enjoy together forever. God chooses to use other brothers and sisters in your life to encourage you and to grow in holiness, to be more like the person you will be in heaven, worshiping God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God gives you the privilege as well as spurring on others in their sanctification, encouraging them to grow in becoming more like Christ. There's a firmness to our hope. As the end of Psalm 15, verse 5 says, He who does these things shall never be moved. Salvation has come. His name is Jesus. He has given us His Spirit so that we can live lives that stand in stark contrast to the world around us, both now and on into eternity. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you how it shows us our, our own sin. And it shows us the salvation that we have in Christ. Uh, Lord, we thank you that, that Christ came and took on flesh and he lived the perfect life that we never could have lived. And he died in our place and rose from the dead. Lord, we pray that that this week we would be comforted by the truth of the gospel and that we would be spurred on towards godliness by the truth of the gospel. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.